0: Welcome to Old Town, New World. We're here in Old Town, Rock Hill, South Carolina at Millstone Pizza. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Trevay. We're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town, USA. We have a wonderful guest with us from Winthrop University, but before I introduce that guest, I'd like to say hello, of course, to uh, Silent Wise Silent Micah. Hello Silent Wise Micah. Well said, well said. And uh, Chris, you're looking handsome today.
1: Thank you. I'm also wise.
0: <laughs> okay. Point taken. Point noted. Hold on, let me take a note here. Hold on. Hold on. Okay, done. Got that noted.
1: Doesn't does hurt to
0: tell me that sometimes. <laughs> and we have with us today Laura Ulrich. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Perfect. Welcome, Laura. (laughs) Thank you. Glad to be here. Laura is a professor of economics, first and foremost. Well, not maybe first and foremost in her life of everything, but first and foremost professionally, but also the assistant dean of the business college of Winthrop University.
2: (laughs) Yes, correct. Did I
0: say all that right?
2: Yes, you did. You did.
0: (laughs) So um, how long have you been at Winthrop?
2: I just finished up my ninth year at Winthrop, so I'm starting my tenth year this next year. Yeah, hard to believe.
0: So you've seen, like, 12 presidents.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have. I feel like that, too, yeah. Four in a very quick succession, but yes. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
0: So DiGiorgio was here for 28 years, and then uh, Jamie was here for, like, what, a year?
2: One year, or less, 11 months, I think, yeah.
0: And then um, Dan came after her?
2: Yeah, Deborah Boyd was acting president for a year. She's our provost, and then Dan Mahoney. Yep, so we had four in four years. Wow.
0: So is that... I imagine that has, um, puts a little dent on uh, morale in some ways, maybe.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think there was a lot of, like, hurry up and wait, if that makes sense, you know, because there's anticipation. We find out is retiring, so then it's like you get excited, a new person comes, and you've got to wait for them to implement things, and then they're gone. And then uh, Deborah Boyd did an amazing job um, as acting president. That. She, everybody says that. She did an amazing job, but... Of course, during that year, um, there was a lot of kind of damage control that had to be done as well because we had lost our president in, in an unfortunate way. So we kind of all waited through that, and then we waited through the next process of getting the new president. And so, it, it, it I think it did dampen morale a little bit, but thankfully, we have really good folks over at Winthrop. So people people were amazingly positive through the whole thing. I have to say, How did you
0: get to Winthrop.
2: Um, I came here directly from graduate school, so um, I knew that I wanted to go to a mid-sized public institution. I did not want to be at a big research like one. A <laughs> That's what it sounds like when I said it that way, doesn't it? So I knew I wanted—I didn't want to go to a research one school, a big research school. I enjoy research, but my passion is teaching. Um, so, and I didn't want to go to a tiny private school either to teach. I knew I wanted to be at a place about this size. Um, so this job came open actually while I was still writing my dissertation. This was the only job I applied oh, for. Wow, no way! Yep.
0: Congratulations! Yeah, on
2: thanks. So it worked out. It was kind of like all the stars aligned. So
0: where were you doing your dissertation?
2: Um, I went. I did my master's and PhD at the University of Tennessee. So I was in Knoxville. Big and, orange. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I am from Athens, Georgia, so I'm a big Bulldog fan. Oh, so wow. I never wore the orange, but um, but yes, I was there for for five years, and we loved Knoxville, but. I also wanted to be stay in the South, uh, not too far from my parents, and be somewhere close to a larger city so my husband could find work. So they're Are you from Rock Hill. No, I'm from Athens, Georgia. Oh, my husband and I right. both. So, but I, I had a very specific. You know, I want to be at a mid-sized university right. near a big city in the South. Well, there's not many schools right. that meet all of those, and when they're checked every box. So even though I was still working my dissertation. It said, it said that they would accept applicants that weren't quite graduated yet. So I applied and ended up here. I got the job. I interviewed July 6th and moved here August 1st. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's all the last minute hire. Have you ever been here before? No. Huh. No. Have you been to the city at all? No. And my husband, um, he's a tax accountant. And as we were coming here, we were saying, yeah, there's just, at the time, we had a nine month old baby and a three year old and so you're all out
0: partying all the time right
2: yeah exactly (laughs) and we said there's no way we're going to take this job and move in three weeks you know there's just no way and when we drove into Winthrop my husband said oh god you're gonna love it here (laughs) just like that and before we left that day we were like driving around looking at neighborhoods so um yeah it just worked out well and looking back on it it we were really lucky the way the way things worked out sometimes,
1: so, sometimes things just come together like yeah
2: that. exactly and so that
1: was you said that would have been like mid uh 00s, i guess
2: no yeah O7. okay 07.
1: so in downtown was looking pretty good at that point right i can't i mean in oh seven it was in better shape than it had been
2: it was pretty
1: there yeah. wasn't anything going on yes yeah.
2: that's that's right. right yep you wouldn't have trouble finding a parking spot then but <laughs> but yeah it was it was from what i understand improved from what it had been yeah yeah yeah,
0: I mean, you know, that was after the roof got taken off for sure. Yes. That was yeah. in 97, 96. Mm-hmm. So, and we blew the roof off. Now that was <laughs> That's something. exciting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Betty Ray
1: got crazy that night. <laughs> um, but uh, like a fable of Rock Hill. They put a roof on the all, but then one night, Betty Ray got really crazy, and the whole <laughs> roof blew off. <laughs>
0: So um, between 1996 when they took the roof off and when you got here, they invested huge amounts of money Mm -hmm. into the kind of public infrastructure that beautified all this area. But as you noticed when you got here, there was nothing happening. So as beautiful as the school is, Mm -hmm. as beautiful as Oakland Avenue is, Mm -hmm. as beautiful as the downtown was, though empty... Did you feel a little anxiety about, like, there's nothing going on in this place?
2: Yeah, so it was really interesting because we had our— my, so my husband and I both grew up in Athens, Georgia, went to University of Georgia, left the day we graduated, basically moved to Atlanta. Lived in Atlanta for two and a half years. Uh, did not like Atlanta like we thought we would. Moved to Knoxville and then came here. So Knoxville's a pretty big place, too. It's about a million people in metro area. And we had always told our parents, we can't—we'll never move back to Athens. It's too small. And then all of a sudden I'm calling him saying, like, we're moving to Rock Hill, South Carolina, and our parents are like, what? And I thought originally we would live in Fort Mill and my husband would work in Charlotte, but he actually got a job um, in Rock Hill with your brother-in-law at Burkitt Oh, CPA. no way. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So they worked together for, gosh, I guess four years. Okay. And um, so since we both were working right here, we said, well, we'll get an apartment in Rock Hill until we figure out where we want to be. Still thinking we might live in Fort Mill um, but then over that year we decided, no, we want to be in Rock Hill. So we live four miles from campus and have been Very here cool. since then. So I was a little hesitant because it was the smallest place I've ever lived in my life. Um, but I really do love kind of the small town atmosphere while being close to a bigger city. I love the ability to go to Charlotte, but I don't want to live in that. Deal with the traffic. Well, you know, area. it's
0: funny when we, when we started to explore our identity as a community here in this most recent version of that, um, there's a tendency to, like, reject Charlotte out of this kind of, like, almost like the bratty teen who's trying to find his own identity. Um, You know, the struggling teen, I should say, maybe. But what we realize, or what I've realized, is that um, being near Charlotte is a huge asset. A huge asset. It's a part of who we are.
2: Yeah, I think one of the shocks for me personally, not being from here, and being somebody that, so I'm a state and local tax and government spending policy economists, basically. Okay, so what I do is is state and local tax policy, state and local spending policy. So I pay attention a lot to, like, state and local politics and how, how cities are spending money and things like that. And one of the shocks to me when I first came here was I felt like Rock Hill was trying to push Charlotte away, and that was unusual to me. I kept thinking, no, like, you're going to be swallowed up. Whether you want, you know, having come from the Atlanta area... I've seen that happen even where I'm from, which is 60 miles outside of Athens. And we're so much outside of Atlanta. and We're so much closer here to Charlotte. And you can grow in a good way that makes you an amazing suburb of a city or you exactly and you can kind of choose who you want to become in that and there's areas of Atlanta and other big cities that have done that very well and there's areas that haven't and when I first came I felt like both Winthrop and Rock Hill really were trying to push Charlotte away like we weren't sending a lot of students up to Charlotte to do internships and we weren't we didn't see ourselves as a part of Charlotte but I've noticed in the past few years that's really changed
0: well you know I think a part of that is because that Charlotte swallowing everything around it Mm -hmm. coincided with the type of development that was um, you know, the um, big-box, clear-cut, mm-hmm. suburban development, where that, that hollows out communities. Yep. Whether you're near a big city or not, mm-hmm. communities get hollowed out by that. So we always associate It's almost like Charlotte was doing that to us, right. but we were doing that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> while, yes, we were a successful suburb of Charlotte and we're always growing because there's just money mm-hmm. spilling over the border and we can't help but grow, you know, we were, we were turning into, like... Um, a, a ballantine like a a strip mall and neighborhood right. that service the Charlotte area and so that's why this downtown redevelopment mm-hmm. has hit, struck such a chord with so many people because it's like this is the way that we can have a unique identity but not Um, reject this giant economy that's right right there beside us, you know?
2: Yeah, in Atlanta, I don't know if you're familiar with the Atlanta area, but there's an area called Decatur. That's where Brian and I live. It's very similar to that. It has its own little... I mean, there's a downtown Decatur. It has its own you know, people would love, like, everybody, everyone's dream to live and work in a place like Decatur. Right, Because yeah. it's, you know, you can walk to restaurants and bars, all this great stuff. But the majority of people in Decatur commute to Atlanta. Right, yeah, exactly. So it has its own identity, but it also does serve yeah. as a commuter. And you see that everywhere. Like, like Alexandria. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and all. exactly.
3: Yeah.
1: It's almost like an extension of, like, every big city has the kind of, area that for any whatever five to ten year period is the gentrification area yeah. that used to be really like low quality and it's dangerous and now it's all hip and cool and that happens within the city but also really big cities tend to have nearby towns that serve the same purpose with their whole towns yeah. and and you really I mean Rock Hill is definitely close enough to Charlotte to pull okay. that off I mean it happens that's a it. lot. Yeah, that's it. So so you this is your area of study basically mm-hmm. and, and say again
0: you focus on...
2: I mean, my, most of my research is actually on education policy, but my training is I'm a public finance economist. I, I, I call myself a policy economist. I don't think there's really such a thing, but um, state and local policy, state and local spending is what I'm really interested in. So I wrote the two um, studies on extending Dave Law Boulevard across the river. Yeah, so that sort of stuff, you know, building roads, building infrastructure. pro? You know, I think... It's hard to say because what I look at is like the economic potential, not how to pay for it, right. right? There's tremendous economic potential. It's, In my opinion, that project would bring more economic benefit to York County than any other I project. This,
0: the person who's grown a business from a speck of sand to something that's at least respectable, I, I do the same thing. I focus on the potential right. and not how to pay right.
2: for it. You well, know what I mean, I, mean the, I think it would be awesome how you pay for it is a huge question mark. Yeah. So to say I'm pro is kind of, it's, I can't really say that because... It would depend on how it's paid for. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm an economist. So I'm really big on paying for it in the right way, yeah, too. Right. Uh, so, could
0: have um, a detrimental effect if you exactly, pay for it in the wrong way.
2: Exactly. Yeah. But I think it could have tremendous economic impact. Oh, I agree.
0: I think it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the worst rhetoric I've heard that didn't even click to me, and I had to like train myself to try to be empathetic to the idea. Like I had to get more historic perspective to even have empathy for the intelligent people who were saying this. Mm-hmm. But anytime it comes to trying to um, intentionally not create connections mm-hmm. so that you can trap in economy. Mm-hmm. I'm like that doesn't make any sense. Like everything's about connectivity. All growth is about connectivity. It's like taking a part of the brain and saying we're going to disallow mm-hmm. you from firing with the rest of the brain. It's
2: not only that, but like in economics and, and public finance, this is getting a little wonky. But that one of the prominent theories in economics is the Tebow theory in public finance which says and that you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah Tim no. <laughs>
0: the, if you're great in college you may not be great in the NFL <laughs> right. it's, yeah. a hey, it's a theory it's a
2: theory this is the other Tebow theory <laughs> yeah. that says that the most efficient way to operate local economies is to allow people to vote with their feet and so what that means is if you value public education above all else then you should go live in the neighborhood that has an awesome school if you want parks you should go put yourself where there are parks and if you let people sort then they can pay taxes in accordance with what they want. So if you want really good schools and really good parks, you're going to pay higher taxes than somebody who doesn't care about those things. And if you limit mobility, you limit the ability for that to happen. And, yeah.
0: Well, I think that's awesome. And I think that it, not only is there mobility n- necessary, but there's also, there has to be a confidence. Because I hear people, I hear the most fiscally conservative people I know say that they would pay more taxes if it was guaranteed that it was going to go to their school right. and it was going to be managed as effectively as they manage their own business. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. otherwise they don't want to pay any more taxes,
1: right. you know what right. I mean? It's such a it's wide swinging gate. Like that's the, the if you can give somebody confidence that their money is going to something they care about, they will give and give and give and give. Yeah. And if they don't have that confidence, they don't want to give anything. Right. It makes a lot of sense, man.
0: So so for for our listener out there, there's a um, Dave Lyle Boulevard is um, one of the main thoroughfares of Rock Hill. It used to be south of the city. Now the city is really all about Dave Lyle as the uh, downtown develops and whatnot. But out by Dave Lyle on in the interstate, there's that's where you have your Target and your movie theaters and you know all that kind of stuff. My Target, your Target. Well, well Chris's Target is out there. Everybody else's Target is somewhere else. Hey, this is just Chris's Target. We're just living in it. Um, we're just shopping in it. But um that road just ends, it just comes to a dead end. And um, if it were to continue, it would connect with 521 in the Lancaster Panhandle, which Charlotte has grown down towards Fort Mill and then out towards Lancaster down 521 and there's huge upscale residential development and all kinds of money out there for people who work in South Charlotte but wanna live in South Carolina because the residential taxes are so low in South Carolina And there's a lot of like a high quality of life in a lot of ways, out there. So we have this thoroughfare of of, that runs out from seventy-seven out to a dead end on Dave Lyle, and then just north of that you have a a thoroughfare that runs from South Charlotte out into all this growth. And the two are like, you could throw a crow. Yeah, (laughs)
2: Yeah. it's like a mile. You know, it it's a three-mile. Well, I think the total extension could be six miles. So it's not far at all, but to get there driving right now, it takes about 25 to 30 minutes. Right. If you do the drive from That's where it was... That's
0: not traffic. No, 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 no. It is disconnected.
2: It takes that much. So if you look at a map, the first time I ever looked at it, what it looks like to me is like there's a bicycle wheel with a spoke missing. that was missing. Yeah. yeah, it's like there was supposed to be this road that crosses over, but since it's not there, you have to go all the way up to Fort Mill or down to cross over and so there's a lot of people that work in York County that are commuting from over there across the river and it takes them an incredibly long time to drive here and plus we have businesses that you were mentioning plus like Sam's Club and Academy Sports, the mall that if actually if that road was built it would be faster for people in Waxhaw and Weddington, North Carolina which is very high end. It would be faster for them to come to our Sam's Club than it would be to go to the one in. North Carolina, therefore we get more tax revenue, yada, yada, yeah, yada. And the whole
0: argument that, like, the people here, that lets the people here go somewhere better, and therefore they're gonna leave, that, that, that makes me laugh because it's like, okay, so we're gonna maintain crappy. Right. And we're going to trap everybody in crappy so that we can keep our economy yeah. together. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense.
2: And doesn't make any sense. And, and doing something like that is really what, like when I was talking about a second ago, you can, you can choose how you grow. And, and Rock Hill is going to be a suburb of Charlotte. And the question is, do you just want it to be a bedroom community, like you're saying, or do you want it to be where people can easily shop, eat, live, work, do everything, and work is a huge part of that, right? So you want to be a suburb of a big city that also is a hub for commercial business.
1: I would say, you know, you're talking about this is Dave Lyle, which we're always, like, trying to get because all of the sort of, like, best-looking parts of Rock Hill are here and on, on Dave Lyle, you know, and, like, we're always trying to get that to happen, and... It's like over like Cherry Road keeps going and it turns into Fort Mm -hmm. Mill and over there like at uh, Riverwalk and stuff you know like every time I go over there there's tons of people there's a lot of life and vibrance over there and I'm always like yeah we're definitely not and and I'm and every time I'm like like who are these people in a positive way I'm like this is awesome like who are these people you man yeah, really. get out of my town you
0: <laughs> like, how'd you get in my house
1: <laughs> let's not talk about that
0: <laughs> that's not important not tr-
1: stop trying to create a diversion
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> if- Dave Lyle if it kept going through there because there's something like to an interstate connecting you is, it's just not the same for, I don't know what it is it's like I love when I was a kid I love knowing that Cherry Road, if you didn't get off, you, just, you end up in Charlotte. I love knowing, like, Independence Boulevard in Charlotte, if you, you go uh, east on it and don't turn, you get to the ocean. Yeah. There's just something yeah. cool about well, that. the other thing
2: is, you don't build a dentist office on the interstate. If you have a yeah. Yeah. highway, yeah. 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 there's things that get built on the highway. And the studies we did, you can find them on the Winthrop website, but um, the studies we did look at what would happen if nothing else was ever built, which is lunacy, right? I mean, if nothing else, there would be gas stations and other things, but even if nothing else was built, you would have more tax revenue coming into the state because of people coming across the river to shop yeah. here instead of Ballantine yeah. Because people in Lancaster County across the river, it's much faster for them to go to the Sam's Club in Pineville yeah. than it is to come here. So we would get that revenue, right? right. But um, but there would be plenty of things built. There would be, and you don't get that on it. On an interstate, yeah. you have the ease of travel, but you don't have all the commercial yeah, activity. Yeah, very just.
1: I don't know. It's not. It's just so prosaic and stuff, as, as opposed to this. Like I don't know. Something about it. Just a, a typical business kind of or commercial road. It's just different. It's not the same thing as an interstate. Yep. So, we'll see.
0: yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, I know there's people trying to figure out ways to pay for it, and whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but to me, it's a different thing to say. Um, obviously, connectivity is good, but boy, it's a challenge to figure out how to pay for it. Yep. Versus to to that there's still people that are putting forward that connectivity is not good. Right. Like, I, I had a meeting with, um, he, was, he was Lindsey Graham's guy in this area. He's not doing that anymore. He's moved on to some other job, but, and it, great guy, great guy. Uh, and, and I thought, and, and forward thinker, I'm not saying that he's not a forward thinker, but he, he's, uh, you know, representing mm-hmm. uh, who he's representing and, and the thinking that's wrapped up in that. So I was talking to him about, what if we ran a high-speed passenger system, train system, from Charlotte to Charleston,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, because you got the biggest economy anywhere around here, Charlotte, right. and uh, an international port, mm-hmm. Charleston, you're connected to. Only great things can come from connecting the to, in my opinion. It could be hugely expensive, but again, only great things can mm-hmm. come. So, he was like, and I was serious, like I wasn't just like, oh, you know, I was like, I, I wanted to get together, um, like I was going to, you know, I uh, already had a list of people, and I won't say their names, whatever, but I had invited their, like, you know, potential future governor, right. like potential people that are already in Congress that were going to interest in this meeting, right, uh, potentially come to this meeting. And and, and we're talking, you know, 50-year time on 30-year time timeline, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but his initial reaction was, huh. Because I made the hard one. I was like, hey, the new economy is an economy of people. We, we long time ago figured out how to move things right. because we were an economy of things. Now we're an economy of people. How do we move people? That's the key, right? And he's like, oh, this is genius, man, I love it. He's like, but maybe we should stop it south of Rock Hill. Like, coming up from Charleston, stop south of Rock Hill. And I was like, what, what? Wait, why? And he goes, well, just so that we don't lose economy over the border. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me, man? How does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, as an From an economic
2: point of view, it doesn't, because mobility generates activity, and you'll generate activity on both ends, and it's, you know, it's kind of like rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, it... it but people get territorial and especially when it comes to government spending and taxes they don't want their tax money and this is part of the issue with Dave Law right you've got two jurisdictions you've got two different counties so who's going to pay for what and part of it's on the river who pays for that and what percentages and all that's always very hard to figure out when you're doing anything county to county or state to state or whatever when you're crossing jurisdictions but I mean anybody who's ever traveled overseas understands the value of Trains and easy transportation, right? Um, but for some reason, the United—it's unfortunate that we didn't get on that a hundred years ago. Well, I
0: mean, I, you know, I am—I am definitely a romantic when it comes to the automobile. Like, I wish I had—I have twelve cars that I've marked on websites as being in my wish list <laughs> that I would like to have. I love it. I love that it reflects my personality. I love the experience of control and driving. I love the whole thing. But back to my point about the economy when our in the industrial revolution we figured out how to move the tiniest thing Mm -hmm. i mean you go into the dollar store Mm -hmm. you buy something for a dollar that was made in china now think about that gasoline traveling on a boat like you know paying people like management infrastructure laws legal governments getting paid how does that cost a dollar that's crazy it's because of the incredibly elaborate incredibly elaborate system that we've
1: created to move things but we
0: have no systems to move people. Right. Well, I
1: guess the- is that because of the thing you said, like our identity as Saturn Like, Because, I mean, I don't feel that way. I, I just want to get in a tube that shoots me to the other place. I want to go like... Swoosh. Even if it's really uncomfortable and <laughs> awful, and I look hilarious when I'm in it. I still want the tube. <laughs> you will definitely look hilarious while you're in it. That's guaranteed. Because I speed by people.
0: <laughs> the Donald Trump. Trump... Why don't you do the Donald Trump face every time oh, you... Yeah. <laughs>
1: if I was designing the tube I'd specifically make it so that you look embarrassing while you do it and people would be like why can you not fix that and I'd be like why would I fix that that's the best part
0: about it yeah. extra benefits well, yeah. and that's where um, you know I kind of play up in my age I'm good Are y'all good y'all okay, yeah. Um I kind of Play up in my age to the Gen Xers in terms of like I love cars and stuff, and you kind of play down in your age to the millennial generation where that's just less important to you. It's just not as important.
1: I think cars are cool. Don't get me wrong, but like they're cool in movies. Do you know what I mean? I want to get in a tube and go to the movies and look at cars. Yeah,
2: right. (laughs) Well, but I think that's a great point because I've noticed a lot of my friends now um, have kids that are approaching driving age, and I remember my parents were out of town. They went to Puerto Rico. My parents never went anywhere. But on my 16th birthday, Uh, they were in Puerto Rico. And you would have thought that I had been personally injured in some way by them. I was so offended by the fact that I could not get my driver's license (laughs) on my 16th birthday. And I think I had to wait. It was either one or two days, and several doors (laughs) were slammed over that. But now a lot of these kids are delaying that. Oh, they're in no hurry at all. Yeah, and and I have several um, friends that live in the D.C. area whose kids have – no desire to get a driver's license. So I do think that's a good point. As time goes on, if you don't adapt to this, if if communities don't say, okay, people aren't going to want to drive as much. So if you don't extend the light rail all the way down or or whatever, or put a high-speed train from one place to another, we're going to lose out on some definite economic action. I think, like,
0: you know, the most kind of, like, um, the most capitalist-thinking person um, in this country... It would ring very, I'm, I'm thinking, it would ring very, very true to this person, whoever they are, the idea that you can get that little tiny plastic thing across the world, mm-hmm. sell it for a dollar, and be a billion-dollar profitable company yeah. in doing so. Yeah. And that's like, that's like an incredible achievement of mankind to do that. Yet we start talking about moving people who are the most important thing right. <laughs> on the planet as far as, you know,
1: If you'll remember when Willy Wonka tried to move it into moving people, it was a disaster.
0: Well, point point well said. Yeah, I guess we'll let Micah respond to that. Nice, nice, Micah. That's hilarious. Um, (laughs) That was harsh. I know that was pretty harsh. Uh, Okay, so as an economics professor, um, what is your, like, there's different ways that you could affect the world. You participated in this study, which was—you um, can answer this question in a second—but it was paid for by somebody.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you also are affecting uh, you're in I won't say infecting, I'll say affecting—the minds of uh, <laughs> the young people who are coming through your classes. Okay. So how do you? Um, There's one now. <laughs> so, sorry, a, a jug band, a plastic jug band just started. Um, so how do you um, impact? change the world through economics
2: that's a good question um well with my students i just try to be as supportive of them as i can be through their educational journey while also challenging them at a really high level i mean i'm uh, i was reading my evaluations the other day and in the it, it says like what are the positive things about this instructor and then what are suggestions for improvement rather than what are the negative things and in the positives, oftentimes they say, her tests are really hard. She really changes it, challenges us, but they put it as a positive. Um, and that's kind of my goal is for them to see that as a positive, that I'm trying to challenge them to think deeper and broader, you know, deeper, uh, both deep and wide, if that makes sense, in a way that they haven't done before. Um, and our students at Winthrop are amazing. Our econ group—we have a really strong group of professors, an amazingly strong group of students. We send a lot of students to graduate programs, PhD programs, law school, all sorts of different programs, and um, they respond well to that. They're—they're they're very good students. So, um, you know, with students, that's what I try to do. I also have a big um, kind of personal interest in international economic development. So, a few years ago, I started doing some work on microfinance oh, cool. in Bolivia oh, and wow. I've continued that now um, I guess this will be my fourth year on that project and so I go down there and with, I've gone, I'll go this summer again That's so all. will have been twice by myself and then I've taken two groups of 16 students down there as well in 2013 and 2015 and we do kind of like shark tank Bolivia. We have entrepreneurs, we take money down there, we grant them money and start businesses so um, Do you work with the
0: Economic Development Group in Bolivia?
2: So I have a partner in Bolivia that I work with that owns and manages a foundation that owns a high-tech entrepreneurship hub and accelerator. Okay. And so it's changed. When we first started, we were working more with micro-entrepreneurs, so entrepreneurs that work in, in um like selling juice on the side of the road uh-huh. or in huge markets in Cochabamba Bolivia where I do most of the work it there's about 300,000 people there's a market that has 50,000 stalls So 50,000 entrepreneurs yes so these stalls are tiny and they sell like very specific things so you might have 50 entrepreneurs selling guitars so realistically maybe they sell one guitar a week I don't know um, and they work from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. seven days a week. Does that
0: one guitar, make enough money?
2: So those are static entrepreneurs. That one guitar will make enough for them to feed their family. The, the Bolivia is the poorest country in South America, but it is not no shoes and socks poverty. When you're there, you don't look around and think like, oh, these people like they're starving. They're not. Um, however, it's static. There's not growth that happens from that. so. the
0: urban centers um, better off than the rural?
2: Yeah, yes. However, the urban, well, it's changed a lot. When I first went down there, uh, they had their president, Ava Morales, he's kind of a Hugo Chavez wannabe and um, when he I, is a
1: listener of this show so yeah, I, yeah. he might be here, we all it's we okay take that kind of heat and we're, actually since we're at a pause here I can't not point out that Cyndi Lauper Money Changes Everything is playing while you're talking <laughs> but continue I just need us to acknowledge that that's insane so I'm sorry I'm so sorry. so
2: he um, when I first went down there people really despised him and thought this is going to be terrible he was the first ever indigenous president about 70% of the population in Bolivia is indigenous so they're like the equivalent of Native Americans here. There's 38 different Native groups there, though. Um, however, it's been so interesting to see it evolve because once he became president, he took they had they had outsourced water production to a private company. They had done some things that were not good. He took it all back because he is quote socialist. Um, and when I went last time, people loved him. There was this huge wow. transformation um, from 2000. 12 to 2015. So, when I first went down there in 2012, the only American thing you saw in the whole country was there was one Burger King in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Now, when I went back last time, there was a Hard Rock Cafe, there was a KFC, there was a Starbucks. But I hate it because so our money is worth here about ten times what it is there. So if I take seven thousand dollars down there and grant it out to businesses, it's equivalent of seventy grand here. And that's why I love doing it because. They're like, the oh, students, yeah. Well, the students, you know, we can raise money here and go down there and do like really meaningful big work. And the students can see just this transformation that you just couldn't see here in the same way. But, um, but the Starbucks and stuff costs the same down there. So, like, if a Starbucks call, oh, really? ca- yes, oh so like God. a like cup a of $30 coffee, $30 bear- cup of coffee, yes, yes, no yes and That's I hate insane. it. And the Bolivian coffee. No offense to Starbucks. Way better. Oh, I'm sure, so, it's Bolivia, right? Yeah. yeah, so I don't like it at all. They built this huge mall, and there's this big hard Rock cafe, but it's fake, right? It's like there's not the economy to support it. Right. It's fake, like, American high-end who's he, development. Who's
1: using that stuff? Though?
2: I don't know. I mean, it's one of the most corrupt countries in the world, so I've, it was probably corruption that built it and corruption that keeps it going, she to be honest. Um, luckily, the guy I work with there um, is very, he has a master's degree from the United States. He's very ethically sound and does not participate in any of that. And we have a great relationship. And, um, so in August, I'm going to take David Warner with me that oh, runs really? the hub here. Yeah. The, so my contact in Bolivia called me, he said, we're going so strong now. I can finally afford to bring you to me for the oh, first awesome. time. Wow. He said, I can bring two people. And I said, can I bring somebody not, you know, not from Windsor? He said, yeah, who do you want to bring? And, I'm gonna bring David so we're cool. going in August because what they do is so similar and I think David will really be interested to see how like a high-tech hub operate it's amazing because technology can be exported for free Right. Yeah. and the problem with Bolivia and countries like it is that they are landlocked and they don't have friendly neighbors and if you're landlocked without friendly neighbors it's almost impossible to export goods in and out yeah. things disappear money disappears Bribes have to be paid. All sorts of stuff goes on, and especially in that part of the world, you also have the challenges of the drug trade. So most of the coca leaves are grown in Bolivia. They're exported into their neighbor countries where the drugs are made. So they're not friendly. Um, but technology is free. So down to export. So down in Bolivia, co- an average college student can hack into just about anything. Practically, they have these hackathons and they teach them to be beneficial hackers and. Um, so it's really cool, actually.
1: I should be clarified. So when you say technology is free to export, you mean as in the traditional sense that the ideas and code or whatever? Yeah,
2: okay. exactly. It's a universal language, right? So they picked up on that there in a way. Now, I haven't been everywhere in the world. I'm not going to try to pretend that. However, I did live in Kosovo in 2014 as a Fulbright Scholar, and it's very similar. It's the poorest country in Europe. It has unfriendly neighbors. It's landlocked they have not picked up on that. In Bolivia though, they're teaching average kids, average college students to code because awesome. it's a universal language. So when you go to these universities there, they're all sitting around with computers just coding, coding, That's coding. That's so exciting. That's yeah. awesome. And so they the, another thing they've realized is there were some other countries that got a head start on that. So like Pakistan, India, countries like that, where a lot of app developers are located and things like that. But there are problems related to that with time zones. So if you have an app developer in Bangladesh, you have to call them in the middle of the night. They have to call yeah. you in the middle. You know, it's it's difficult. Well, Bolivia is in the same time zone as us most of the year, anyway. So so they've picked up on some of that. So they are starting to outsource a good bit to the United States that's of U.S. Awesome. jobs. Yeah, that's it's, wonderful
1: it's like is depressing as it might get sometimes when you're like you realize at thanksgiving dinner that everyone's looking at facebook like that saddens you in some way but then you look at the way that the information age affects that kind of thing and it completely makes up for any sort of like negative connotation it really does
2: and it's great you bring that up when i went in 2012 check in the hotel and they have they had facebook ashtrays which i'm sure were not (laughs) official (laughs) facebook ashtrays but the hotel had these ashtrays as in the Start Facebook the next logo. Big idea. Yeah, exactly. In the Facebook logo. And I even took a picture of one. I'm like, this is weird. Well, the next day I spoke at a conference for like 400 people. And I have like 250 Facebook requests, friend requests right afterwards. And I always accept them. And so I have friends, tons of friends down there. And um, they will ask me questions. And um, yeah. it's, it's awesome, you know, yeah. because now when I take students down there, especially, it's not a one-time thing. They go down there, they make connections, they do friend them on Facebook. You know, they've got their phones. Everybody has a smartphone down there. Um, So they're immediately pulling it out. There's Wi-Fi is much more prevalent in Bolivia and Kosovo, actually, than it is here. There's every... Because they don't have have data plans on their phone. So there's Wi-Fi in every grocery store, every restaurant, every convenience store, everything. So people immediately are pulling out their phones, friending you on Facebook, Mm -hmm. and or Twitter, or follow your Twitter, or whatever, and they're keeping in touch with them over time. So it's really, it's that cool.
0: You know, you happen to know a girl named Belen down there? No. <laughs> in Bolivia? You know? Is she
2: Bolivian?
0: <laughs> yeah. I got a friend named Belen down there. She works in economic development and um, really? in entrepreneur um, in activities. I don't know.
2: You need to find I out was for in me. I a program
0: with her at uh, the John F. Kennedy School.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, find out for me, because I'm yeah. going I August will. 4th. I will. She's August 14th. Awesome.
0: <laughs> Um. So, w- when I was in this program at the Kennedy School, there was um, the concept of leapfrogging.
1: Mm-hmm. Our
0: professor, um, J- Colestus Juma, this guy's amazing. He works mm-hmm. in Africa and, and yeah. predominantly, but. His last name is Juma? Juma. Oh, Juma, okay. He, um, the idea is leapfrogging, and, um, and we need to apply that here in the United States, but the idea is, you can't, like those countries can't go through a 150 year industrial revolution. There's no time. It's not like they would ever catch up sure. by going. To, so they have to leapfrog into the new economy. Mm-hmm. So there, they have Wi-Fi access and are mm-hmm. learning coding. Mm-hmm. When you're thinking, guys, y'all can't feed the people yes. in the. You know, but but the point is that's okay, it is okay because yeah. you have to leapfrog into mm-hmm. the new economy. And, and the example, uh, Colesius always gave was, um, I can't. I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but it's a country in Africa that invented. Um, transfer of money through SMS uh, text. And the reason why is because they were doing Mm micro-lending and they were lending like a dollar to these women out in villages to start being able to sew. They'd buy like a sewing machine. Mm -hmm. Well, the women would want to pay it back. But it would be like a four-hour drive, a 12-hour drive out to the desert to go collect a dollar and they couldn't afford to collect the money. And so the women who were trying to pay it back somehow invented the ability to pay it back and that gave the world the ability to transfer money through SMS, through text. That's
1: crazy. It's like what you were saying about the fact that there's a Facebook ashtray. It's funny because we (laughs) noticed that then Micah and I do a different podcast. Um and then one time we like uh boosted the Facebook ads for it or whatever, and we got tons and tons and tons of likes. That were from, like, people from other countries that didn't speak English, probably didn't know what our podcast was about, but were clicking it because Facebook told them it was cool. And that's so strange because in this country, Facebook is like, oh, it's Facebook. Like, if you're young and if you're cool or whatever, you're like... My parents use Facebook. Like, if you're in your 20s and you use Facebook, you're at least partially partially using it ironically. But, you know, in other countries, you're like, Facebook is your access right. to, like, the rest of the world and the future, and it's so yeah. exciting, it's you know? Comfort- access, connectivity, yep. mobility, all
0: that. You know, I, I think that the new economy, all economies have always been, but the new economy is about, if there's a word, it's connectivity. You know, the Internet is a whole other dimension to the human experience. I mean, it really can't be overstated. Think about it. Like, I always talk about before the telephone, and let's discount the telegraph and roll it in with the telephone, but, like, for the entire history of human experience, you could not have a conversation with somebody unless they were there with you. A real-time conversation. And then all of a sudden comes this device where we're talking to people on the other side of the country in real time, and our voices are traveling along that little Mm -hmm. wire. It's like, how does that work? But for like three generations now, they've been unimpressed with the telephone because of course you have a telephone, obviously. Well now, the millennial generation, the first generation is unimpressed with the fact that we have ubiquitous access and all of human knowledge in our pocket. It's just unimpressive, you know what I mean? Because we are just born into that level of access and connectivity. And when places don't have it, you're gonna have huge economic unintended consequences of denying access and connectivity.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that we're missing out on in the US that I see when I do travel around is the people who have not had those other things because the leapfrogging is an interesting concept because you do have people now in the developing world that have a smartphone that never had a landline phone. They never had it, it was not available, and if it was, they couldn't afford it. They leapfrogged, right? So people in these countries, a lot of them are very, very eager to get information in huge quantities and so when I travel places people will say things like I want to talk to you about Adam Smith and the wealth of nations <laughs> oh really like no one in the United States has ever asked me that you're like hey listen <laughs> I'm married <laughs> they're I'm reading right. <laughs> They're reading everything they can get their hands on related to economics or if they want to do finance or whatever and in the US people are just the students Many of them are just sitting back, like, just reading snippets. Right, right. Not really observing, I mean, absorbing a lot of information. It's just, like, one inch deep. And people overseas, because they are absor- absorbing a lot of information, and now the transfer of information and knowledge is pretty quick. It's li- qu- so fast. They're yeah. going to pretty quickly...
1: Just full disclosure, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I have to assume that it's like somebody coming up to you and being, and you like, "Have you heard of this band called the Ramones? Or have you heard of the Beach Boys?" Saying <laughs> like, I, "I need to learn about Steven Spielberg." Yeah,
3: uh, Adam
2: Smith wrote *The Wealth of Nations* 1776, which is one of the core. Yeah. It's one of
0: the core. He's the founder of
2: economics. That's what I was
0: about to say. Yeah. It's one of the core uh, kind of works that started
2: the whole idea of economics yeah. in the modern sense. And I've never read it. <laughs> huh. there you go. I know you wouldn't want. It. It's like. Five hundred pages of 1776 British it's like writing. Reading the appendix to Moby Dick. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so. Yeah. so I've never read it. So when they ask me that, I just smile and nod and talk yes. about something else. <laughs> well,
1: when people are talking about the Ramones, a lot of times I have to be like, Yeah, of course. So same here. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is.
0: Um, but it is about access and connectivity. I mean, you know. You look at what's happening in the U.S., and there's this, this renaissance that I liken to, um, fl- I think we're all Florences in a new renaissance. Like, Florence of the Italian renaissance was an explosion of the creative class. You know, we we're coming out of a centralized period, in the Dark Ages, and this explosion of the creative class. Florence was in, in no way in the center of the world, and Venice was, because it was a port, but Florence was landlocked right. and had the river, of course, to bring in boats, but they decided to, to do placemaking They brought in, um, like, kind of technology incubators. They invested in uh, public art. They created culture. They made it where the coolest kid in town wanted to go to Florence because that's where all the cool kids were. And they made money because what they did was they made their fortune on textiles, but they had none of the raw materials at all. The people from the East brought them the raw materials of textiles and brought them all the berries and stuff. And what they did in Florence is they invented a new process um, to, to make better textiles so that they would stay brighter, longer. And they made a fortune. But think about it. All they were doing was inventing, like, intellectual IP. They were doing IP development. And, and it was all about... If we get the the bluegrass bands here and the guys with mustaches and boots, then you're going to have the people that are creating IP, and you know what I mean? That's that was all. It's the same thing we're doing in downtown Rock Hill. They were doing in Florence, Italy, and, and there's a new Renaissance happening in the United States and all the towns across the United States. And it's fascinating to me to see how there's this hyperlocalism and globalism happening, where like yeah there's a renaissance in downtown rock hill but like i might have somebody in bolivia yep. creating an app for me and and, and that's nothing like that's nothing mm-hmm.
2: yep you know? and you can get it just as fast yeah. as you could here and actually they'll probably do it for you way faster cheaper yeah, exactly. right but yeah but the the transfer of the knowledge is fast you don't yeah. have to wait weeks for it to and, and you know i don't, I don't think people like you were talking about that the idea of like moving stuff versus moving people and moving ideas there are places in the world where you still can't move stuff right. like when I lived in Kosovo I took my three people and brought kill thought I had lost my ever-loving mind when I announced I was going to go to Kosovo on a Fulbright and I took my three young children with me but my husband had to stay here he had to work um he works for Walt to campus here locally and he had he had to stay here so I took my three young kids over to Kosovo one of the newest countries in the world wasn't a country till 2008. And um, to
0: our, take your kids to Kosovo. Is the brochure they have yet? Yeah. Your
2: kids <laughs> exactly. To well, I tried to buy a travel book, and there's one, and the first page says, "No one travels to Kosovo." We're assuming if you've bought this book, you're going to work in Kosovo. <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm uh, basically, sorry, it's you have the
2: wrong book. I remember I looked up. I looked up the statistics on tourism in Kosovo, and there were more. This is God's honest truth. In 2013 there were more or 2012 there were more US tourists who had gone to Iran than Kosovo. Oh wow. Yeah. So I was literally going somewhere people don't really go. And took my kids and we got our address. Well, it was a paragraph. So I took it into one of my students. They speak Albanian there, which is very different from English. So it was very difficult to learn. I learned very little. But I took it to my students and I said, Can you please read me my address? I want to know what it is, if I want to order a pizza or whatever. And it was like Apartment, end of the hall, second floor, yellow apartment with a green roof near the statue. It was a written description because there are no addresses. So you can't, you don't get mail. There's no mail. Wow. If, if somebody wants to, if you have a bill, they stick it in your door. Um, but there's no mail. So you can't send something there. It's impossible. So, you know, we think about here you know and I I try to teach Bolivia is similar very similar if you send something there it may take six months may never get there if it does it may be stolen or part of it missing but I try to explain to my students you know we'll deal with like a woman who runs a bakery there and go in her house watch her making these little donuts this is the actual woman that we donate money to Cynthia and she's making them with uh, in a bowl with a big spoon like stirring and she's making a thousand donuts a day and you look and you think, for the love, why don't you go buy a mixer? They're not <laughs> expensive. But here, we can order a mixer on Amazon for 20 bucks, and it gets in two days, it'll be at my house. Or I can go to, I mean, how many places just in Rocky would a mixer? Walmart, 25? Yeah, right. In Bolivia, there's nowhere. There might be one place. But no Bolivian companies make mixers, so you'd have to buy a U.S. mixer that was exported to Bolivia, which is impossible to get things to. So for that same mixer that would cost $20 here, it might be the equivalent of $1,000 there. And then you
0: reverse the the economies the other direction where $1,000 to her exactly. is so much more exactly. money than $1,000 to her. Exactly.
2: Us. So yeah. so some things, you know, it it's so hard for us to wrap our brains around the idea that there are places in the world where you still can't get things, but you can get ideas and information. That's leapfrogging, yeah, right? Yeah, it is, it you is. Know, so it's like we, can't, we
0: can't solve all of our thing-getting problems, and then one day we'll hope to catch up with the rest of the world. That'll never happen. You know, I was giving uh, Tommy Pope and Gary Simrel a hard time about the roads Bill in South Carolina. Kudos to Gary Simrel for getting a bunch of money put towards right. bridges and roads because so, we got to do something, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, I keep asking the same question. It comes back to leapfrogging. We need to learn from underdeveloped countries is mm-hmm. what we need to do but, because our developing country, whatever the, I don't know right. what to say, but, uh, but, like, we're never going like, to catch up by doing things the way we've done them over the past 50 right. years and then be in a place of cush where we right. can say, oh, we should innovate. Uh-huh. You don't innovate when you're on the couch covered in money and <laughs> fur. You know what I mean? Smoking a hookah. Right. That's not time to innovate. You, know? you innovate when like, shit's hard yeah. and, and like, you can't figure out how to do it. And right. so you radically change the way you're doing things, uh-huh. and that's how you innovate. So I was telling them, like, what if we paved all the rural roads in South Carolina with solar panels? Because we can't provide equitable uh, road paving, because if only two people drive down some long country road, we can't afford to pave it. But we need to provide equitable uh, whatever because it's equitable. So we would be happy nobody's driving on this road if it was generating a tenth of the uh, electricity for the entire state of South Carolina. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah. is that crazy? Or
2: no, I think it. I think big things take big ideas, you know. And if you, if, you know, I'll say to my students sometimes to put them in the right framework, I'll say, like, I just want you guys to think about the fact that there were no interstates before Eisenhower said, <laughs> before Eisenhower said, we're going to have interstates. Right, You know, or, or, and so there's... And that was a military move. Right, right. But think about what it's done oh, yeah. to the connectivity of the United States, you know. And so... And we talk about that, like without four eighty five, would Valentine be where it is? Of course not. So so it's connectivity and, and big ideas take big risk and it takes big thinking. And I, I think Rock Hill you know, I've I've been so impressed because my kids go to the local public schools and they my younger kids go to one of the choice schools and you know, Rock Hill is way more forward thinking than you would might think coming from the outside that a smaller town in South Carolina would be. Um, but going forward, it's going to continue to take big thoughts, big ideas, and not all of them will work. Right. right. It, and something's going to fail. And when Amen. it does, that's okay, and you and you sweep up the mess and you keep going. And I think that failure, you know, we oftentimes see it as just the end of the road and it's just a stop along the way. Like, you, it's going to happen. Not every big idea is going to work, but if you don't try these big ideas, you're going to be left behind. I am
1: absolutely think that's the case. I think one of the biggest detriments – so humanity at large is the fear of failure mm-hmm. and the, the to not accept failure like I don't know that sounds like I'm a snake eating its tail that's failure but like <laughs> yeah, but it, to to it, failure when I mean, things going wrong and mistakes are not going to move that's right. always going yeah. to be there and so you have to accept failure like as and not like fear it and not have it be a negative and not be the thing that you're always trying to avoid. Have to accept failure because it will always be there no matter what we do. I agree,
0: man, but I think the key is, and I say this a lot, and I can't remember if I stole it or if I made it up, but at this point, whatever. Um, Yeah, um, the key is to fail fast and fail often. Because if you wait and fail huge, you lose all buy in, all confidence, all resources, everything so you fail every step along the way and you can, there's this great quote from Michael Jordan that I can't even paraphrase cuz i would butcher it so bad but it basically comes down to he lists off like all these failures he's like you know like you know you know like 150 times i was trusted to take the the last second shot and missed it you know like he he lists off all these things that are just failure 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 and this is michael jordan you know considered the greatest of his little area that he focused on and at the end he says and that's why I was a success, you know. It's like I did it over and over. No matter what, I kept going. I kept going. I kept going.
1: We can accept that a painter, before he paints his finished painting, sketches it and says, "Nah, that's not right," and he sketches again. And he sketches again. And we, yeah, we accept that. But it's like we can't accept that that there's, not everything in life looks like a sketch. But you have to apply that principle if you want to get a great painting that matters. You have to find a way to apply that idea of like vomiting out the thing that you think is right, and if it doesn't work, you figure it out again, you know, and that's just missing from so many things. the question is, how do you, I think the question that I'm hearing us say here is,
0: how do you take creative process into public process? And that's really what we're facing. That's
2: the hard thing, and I think a lot of the reason why that's really difficult is because usually the people that you have running the public process are not, the younger probably more creative risk class, taking right. more creative class because they you know there's different periods of your life right there's different like right now I'm married I have three kids I can't afford to be like crazy risky now oh, wow. you know <laughs> like I gotta pay my mortgage yeah. and yeah. I've got three children I've got to feed. you know I could have been riskier in my 20s than I can be now at my so, age. so
0: I don't know I'll take them to Kosovo right or, exactly yeah, right, yeah, yeah I know,
2: nothing risky. I, know. Nothing I, used risky. To, I used to put them in a cab <laughs> to go to school when they were like four and six with oh two god, euros no way. yeah no way. Yeah. No way. yeah that's pretty oh risky oh my
1: god that's pretty
2: <laughs> risky but that's what you do in kosovo Holy i was just but, but i think I but you see i, I, think, I think
1: people in general need more of that faith because yeah. Yeah. i mean i understand it's certain things are dangerous and i know it's easier said than done but a lot of the things that hold us back in this culture and in this world is fear of the unknown fear of the abstract what if mm-hmm. And I, I think a little more faith. I think we gotta all use a little more faith. Yeah,
2: throw, your, throw
1: your kids in a cab.
2: Yeah. Tell well, the cab I to go to America. I was there, but then after I was there, I was like, wow, Like, kids are walking around by themselves <laughs> that are it four years normalized old. Yeah, and my 10 my year old at the time, um, I would give him like five euros and he would just go find a barber, get a haircut, and come find back. A, find a bar? A barber. A <laughs> not a bar, That's a barber. A <laughs> but here in the United States, I would be arrested. But there, a 10-year-old was like a teenager, basically. I mean, he could go do things. And they loved it. That was the interesting thing. When we came back, they felt very restrained. They did not like it. But but I think that's part of what's hard about taking things from, like, the creative process to the public process. Because, in general, people don't enter the public process till they are further along in their life. And so you don't necessarily have the latest and greatest things being proposed. And... The people who are gifts things are always the loudest, yeah, exactly. and you have a very loud minority that complains and complains and complains, and so well you know
0: that's why I'm so inspired by um, what I call the connected village, this idea of like the we are the new Florence of the new Renaissance, because one of the things that Florence did back in the Renaissance was it was run by guilds, and guilds were these weird kind of bed partners, so to speak, of like you'd have a guild that would be like Artists, like clay uh, sculptors and bankers, you'd know, be like, "What?" You know, but it was different people from different areas that would come together because of some common interest, and they would form a guild, and that's how they ran the city. So you know, now you you have kind of the, you don't have that. You have more of a, if you if you strap up, business suit up, participate long enough. You'll get potentially, if you, you know, and, and if I can say it, if you are the right color and, you know, you're the right, right whatever, you, well, you'll get to sit at the table eventually, right. keep at it, you know, when you're 60, right. you, you get to sit at the table and as long as you rubber stamp things that come through, you get to stay at the table, mm-hmm. you know. But if you shake all that up and you say, okay, let's take everybody this, here in this place and let's form different groups um, from their will, not us, So if a bunch of kids wanna be with a bunch of kids and they don't want to invite adults, fine. If we're having a mixture group, fine. Whatever. Let's all get together and all like start putting voice into the process. That's what was going on. And and I mean this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago and that was happening. You know, how how are they more progressive than we are now, you know?
1: Yeah. I don't know. So it is it's a core principle, I think that like if you can't get rid of ego and look at the common good, and you don't have any value. But the problem is continually when you do focus on personal ego, it's like we have this, it tends to sort of take control of a lot of systems. When you have a lot of people worried about ego versus a common good, it takes control of the system because it's just natural. You know, like the way that we tend to pick leaders that sound confident and loud, Mm Uh, because we want somebody to tell us everything's gonna be okay, you know, even though it's a it's a bigger risk to to you know. Clarity
0: and confidence is what people follow. You can be as wrong as the day is long, <laughs> but if you are confident and clear, people will follow you. Yeah, that's true. You know, so how do we inject into kind of the the study of uh, e- economics the I- these ideas that aren't um, represented on paper? Like for example. We don't want to lose the the charismatic quarterback that we need to rally the people around an emotional idea. You know, we don't want to discount uh, the kind of sad, alone person who puts poetry into the world. Like, but none of that shows up on a spreadsheet. You know, so how's that represented in, in economics, or is it not?
2: It's hard, right? Because it's. I mean, especially I think as time goes on, every so much is data driven and does yeah. matter what shows up on a spreadsheet versus. But You know, we have this theory in economics called reversion to the mean, which is like kind of basically like things change but always reverts back a little bit. And I don't know, I think about like I was in Poland a few years ago and there's this uh, salt mine in Krakow that's uh, one of the UNESCO sites and it's one of the oldest mines in the world and they were lowering people like... I can't remember. I mean, something like 4,000 feet under the ground by rope in the 1300s. And one of the things they did under there was they actually, they were mining salt, but they also hired artists to sculpt the salt. And so you can still go down there and see these sculptures that were done. It's awesome. Yeah. Holy cow. I'm actually taking a group of students next summer there um, because Krakow, Krakow, Poland is awesome. Yeah.
0: yeah. Krakow, Um, Poland?
2: Krakow. Krakow. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, I went to the wrong
0: side of
1: Poland when I was there, sorry. Yeah,
2: go back to Krakow. I went to my
1: so-called life, Brian Krakow.
2: (laughs) But, you know, I think that at the end of the day, like process matters and, you know, making money matters and all that matters. The spreadsheet matters. But at the same time, creativity always informs that, right? And it is always what moves it forward. And if you look at the people who have always been the quote, richest people in the world. They were the innovators. They were the creative people. They're not the people who are sitting around saying, well, just do what my dad did. You know, it's the, you know, it is Mark Zuckerberg who who had this pretty funky idea, you know, and and for him to quit college and go and chase that dream was pretty out there at the time. Um, and, And even if you look back at the Vanderbilts, you know, building these railroads at the time, that seemed pretty out there. Because there weren't a lot of people that they were connecting from point A to point B, right? Now it seems common sense, but then it didn't. So I think it's always going to be those risk takers and the people that are creative that rise to the top. It's just getting local economies, I think, to accept that and try to make it happen where they are, right? Because there are places in the U.S. who've been just uber successful at that, um, that do have this creative class where there's tons of economic development and the spreadsheet looks great, yeah. but that spreadsheet is driven by people that are a little bit different. Right. You I've know? never seen the spreadsheet. Exactly, and don't right. care about and the spreadsheet care, yeah. and do not operate their life based on a spreadsheet. Yeah. And even though I'm an economist, I'm married to a tax accountant, I mean, we are as spreadsheet-oriented as people could be, probably. Um, but I can I can appreciate not being that way. Well, you know, well, you I mean, need I some mean, of just both.
0: Just as you drop the places that you have visited, and that you have put yourself into these situations of unknown, potential failure, yeah. crazy things. <laughs> like, to be a spreadsheet person yeah. who drops herself into chaos right. is kind of a, a yeah. dichotomy of
2: Yeah, I think so. I definitely am not kind of typical of an economist, probably. Uh, I, I grew up in a very... Uh, I mean, I have an awesome family but very like middle class you know never traveled internationally never really took risk Uh, my sister called me a stick in the mud my whole life I was like never did anything bad you know I was just in my own little box and I could succeed in my little box so I stayed there but once I had kids I thought well heck I've got this job where I could go do cool stop and immediately take my kids out of the box. So when we went to Kosovo, I took my kids to 18 countries. Oh God, and awesome. we went everywhere. I mean, it was like, we would just, say like, let's go to Macedonia this weekend. Alright, let's go to Macedonia. We went we went to Greece one weekend. We didn't know where we were. We were we were at a coffee shop. My, my son's like, what's that mountain? I'm like, I don't know. I get on Google Maps, and it was Mount Olympus. Oh, in
1: <laughs> the, the actual mountain. Yeah, oh, that's like, the mountain. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And my son is like, At the time, huge into these Percy Jackson books. So he thinks Mount Olympus, you know. And the
0: guy taking your order was wearing, like, a tunic, like (laughs) a robe. (laughs) You were like, where are we? We knew we
2: were in Greece, (laughs) but we had no idea where we were. Um, I, I never had any of that in my own upbringing. But I thought, you know, I get to choose. You know, the great thing about being an adult is I get to choose how I do this. And if I do anything with my kids, I think especially because my kids are growing up, Um, it's just us here you know we're kind of like this little clan but they're growing up um, in a pretty sheltered environment here by design really you know they go to local schools our church is right here we're we're, we're just right here in Rock Hill Um, but I want them to see that the world is really connected and that people are the same everywhere it just doesn't what, matter where you
0: go. They're exactly what it's Let me use this as a segue to kind of a closure to our um, our podcast here and say that um, I think that, um, you know, something that you said a second ago rings very true to me because you, you said, you know, oh, and yeah, now that I'm adult, like, I get to choose whatever I want. Well, I would say that 95% of the people in the world choose whatever I want is... Is limited to you know a a fraction of a percent of possibilities that they could actually choose. Because I used to I used to not be able to sleep at night as a kid, as a as a like a te- older teenager like eighteen whatever, thinking I could be in China right now. Why am I in uh, Why am I in the honeycombs in USC and and the guy next to me is vomiting on the floor? Like why am I here? I could be anywhere in the world. It used to drive me crazy because the idea that um, that I can do whatever, um, versus the the motions that push me into kind of my the the path that you know that's pushing me along forward, the, the normalcies and the, just the easy you know path of least resistance. On it, it used to drive me crazy, and it was years later that I started to, to take more ownership over. Okay, so I get it now. So I really can choose and I make decisions. But you know, I think it's um, impressive that you have made the choices that you've made. Because while yes, it's true that yes, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want now and take my kids wherever. Most people, that does not ring true. Well, it can because we have you know we have the mortgage and we can't because right. we have the soccer tryout right. on like Tuesday and yeah, we just can't. And
3: we do that too. Yeah, we and, have both.
0: We
1: yeah, have both. And develop, you do that too, Chris? I think it rings true for everybody. It's just it's for most people. I think it's like, well, nothing really that horrible happened where i'm at right now so i'll stay here because i don't have any proof that nothing really horrible will happen if i don't go over there i could could do that going to the grocery store sometimes like what
2: if something horrible happens at the grocery store we're going to honduras in two weeks and everybody at my work is like why are you going to honduras why would you go to honduras why are you going because i've never been there i want to go there i want to see i like to go to new places and Um, It's cheaper to go to Honduras than Myrtle Beach. (laughs) I mean, that's the reality of it. Like, you go to these places, people think it takes all this money. It does not. It's cheaper than being here. Um, But people definitely regularly think that I've lost my mind. But I just think as an economist, especially, and I'm teaching these students, I want them to understand how markets connect and how the world connects. And I definitely feel like the risks that I've taken have been worth the reward of bringing it back and talking and teaching students and taking them with me.
0: Yeah, oh. Yeah. so I will say that good for you for your own life, good for your children, for their lives, but also good for our students who have professors who um, connect, uh, you know, spreadsheet-based kind mm-hmm. of academics with the, re- you know, the plight and the romanticism of real life, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what life's about, you know, I mean... You know, I I want to see more data on why we should extend the blue line from Charlotte to downtown Rock Hill. Mm -hmm. But to be honest with you, what I really want is to come into work tomorrow and have a a nice, enjoyable, pleasant experience that isn't, like, predictably mundane. You know, I I want to be opened up to new ideas, and it's what I really want. And and the idea that we are there's leapfrogging going on all around the country... It doesn't happen without connectivity. So yes, we can send uh, data bytes of information across the gigawatts of, of connect j- jobby boobs, but, but humans traveling around and, and the world and engaging with other humans. Like, you taking David Warner yeah. down to, uh, who's running the, the technology incubator here locally, uh, down and, and visiting one in Belize? No, Bol- Bolivia. We're going oh.
2: to three cities in Bolivia. Wait a minute.
0: Hold on. My friend's in Belize. Belize. Wow. <laughs> I totally blew that. Sorry. I so blew that.
2: Are yeah.
0: When you not in America. Oh, Do, you yeah. Do you know Jim? <laughs> Jim, he's also not in America. Damn. God. I knew I would mess that up. Uh, anyway. Anywho. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I
2: appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Chris, you look very handsome. Thanks. And wise. And wise. You're wise too, yeah. <laughs> thank you for it, fishing for it. And I, we will end with, um, if we can have a, a, a prayer of solitude from uh, Silent Micah. <laughs> you're hilarious, Micah. God, <laughs> kills me. All right, well, I guess we'll see you next week on Old Town New World.